Good morning, church. It is so good to see all of you and again to know that there are so many more that are watching online. I know that today is Super Bowl Sunday, but I have to confess that I'm far more excited that today is also New Sermon Series Sunday. I get super excited about New Sermon Series. I love I love this time that we can spend together on Sunday mornings because, as you know, I love you and I appreciate you, but I also love that as a preacher, what I get to do and how I sort of think about preaching is that I get to act sort of as a tour guide on a cross-cultural experience, right? That's what I get to do because every time we open scripture, it is a cross-cultural experience, We open up the Bible, we're not only transported back in time, we know that, but we're also moving to a different culture where people not only lived thousands of years ago, but lived on the other side of the world and thought about things many times very differently than we tend to think about things. If you were to travel to the other side of the world today, people would think about things very differently then we tend to think about things, and especially 2,000 years ago. So when I get to preach to you and we get to spend this time thinking about Scripture and how it applies to our lives, we have to understand that this is a cross-cultural experience, that this is a different culture. And there's so many good things that we can learn from the culture of the first century church and how they tended to think about things. One of the things that's starkly different about our culture and their culture is that many of us tend to be very individualistic. We tend to think primarily in terms of our own personal self. I'll give you an example. Used to, before COVID, I used to get to go and preach in different places and speak at different things. And when I would go and when I go to some other place, they always ask me for a bio, right? And so I'll give them a short little description of myself and I'll say, my name is Wes and I preach at McDermott Road and I live in McKinney, Texas and I used to live here and I used to preach there and I have a wife and I have two kids and it's all about me. I've never once in my bio ever mentioned my my parents, much less mentioned that I descended from a 13th century Scottish bishop, Adam of Caith. I've never, I've never mentioned my ancestors or my great-grandparents or my grandparents or even my parents. Why? Because that's not how we tend to think about who we are. When someone asks us, who are you? We, we don't think about our ancestors. We don't think about generations and generations back. We don't tend to anyway. We tend to think about ourselves. What, what do I like to do? What are my hobbies? Where do I live? What do I think? How do I feel? And we tend to think about me, right? We tend to think about ourselves very much in terms of us as an individual, but that's not really how the ancient Near Eastern people thought about themselves. I mean, just think about the way Jesus is introduced to us in the Bible. When, when we think about Jesus and we want, tell me about Jesus, we want to know things like, well, what did he look like, right? We want to know. Have you ever wondered, what did Jesus look like? What did he sound like? People have asked me before, what did Jesus' accent sound like? I don't know. If we were reading a modern story about a modern person, especially living in the West, we would expect them to tell us, what did he look like? What did he sound like? What did he like to do? What were his hobbies? What did he dislike? What did he enjoy? But the Bible doesn't start with any of those things. In fact, it doesn't satisfy our curiosity on any of those things. Instead, it starts with his genealogy. It says that he's the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, 
the son of Judah. Why? Because for those people in that time, the ancient Near Eastern people, that's how you got to know about somebody. If you said, who are you? And somebody started to tell you about their hair color or what they look like or where they lived or what their job was, they, they would say, okay, well, that's fine, but I don't, that doesn't tell me anything about you. Who are your people? Who is your nation? Who is your tribe? Who is your clan? Who is your family? So we need to understand that when we're reading scripture and we're being transported not only back in time but to a different culture, that they believe that in order to get to know someone, you had to know their people. What, what people do you come from? What, what's your nation? What's your tribe? What's your clan? Who's your family? Where do you come from? And again, we tend to think very differently. Now, that's not to say that their way of thinking was perfect and our way of thinking is completely flawed, but they had certain struggles and we have certain struggles. One of their struggles was partiality, right? One of their struggles was being partial to people from their own nation, being partial to people from their own tribe, being partial to people from their own clan, being partial to people from their own family. They thought more in terms of we, we think more in terms of me, right? But they tended to define we too narrowly. They tended to define us too narrowly. We are narrowly about who is us, who is we. And the gospel challenged them to define we and define us more broadly to include all of God's people from other nations, from other tribes, from other clans, from other families. But again, we tend to define everything in terms of me, and the gospel also challenged us to expand and think not just in terms of me, but think in terms of we and think in terms of who are God's people, because God's people are my people. And if I'm going to understand who I am in Jesus, then I need to understand who God's people are, because God's people are my people. And so if we're going to really embrace a Christian view of things, if we're going to embrace a Christian identity, then we have to embrace who we are in Jesus, which means we need to have a broad view of who we are. Are because we are the body of Christ. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, because this, again, not only challenged the people of the first century, primarily Paul is writing to Jews and to Greeks and helping them to understand that we are everybody who is in Jesus, that both Jews and Greeks are saved by God's grace through faith, so all y'all are family, right? Y'all are family. Y'all are part of God's family. So that was a challenge to them, and it's also a challenge to us. Look at Romans 12 and verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, again, we have to challenge ourselves with the way we tend to read Scripture, when we read this, we say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and we think, I appeal to Wes, right? And so we tend to take this and apply it to our own self, and we tend to look at this, and we say, okay, because of what God has done, I need to take my body and submit it to God, and I need to be a living sacrifice to him, and that's true. But 
the you there isn't singular, it's plural. So we have this tendency to read scripture and personalize it. And there's some good things that can come from personalizing it, but we definitely need to pluralize it. Is that a word, pluralize it? It it, it should be, right? That's how we need to read it. It's not just you singular, it's you plural. Or in Texas, we say, I I used to think it was y'all, but apparently it's all y'all, right? So all y'all, I appeal to all y'all, therefore, brothers, because of what God has done for you, because of God's mercy, all y'all, all of you, Jews and Greeks, Slaves and free men and women, everyone needs to submit themselves, surrender themselves, sacrifice themselves, make their bodies a living sacrifice to God. So again, we get into trouble when we just personalize the scripture instead of pluralizing the scripture. It's not just about Wes and it's not just about you, it's about all of us in Jesus. And if we're going to adopt the gospel way of thinking, then we have to allow it to shape our thinking. So look at verse 2. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I love this, I love this contrast between conformed and transformed. Now, conformed means to be shaped to a mold, right? And every culture, when he says, when he says don't be conformed by this world, he's not talking about planet Earth, right? He's talking about by this culture, by any culture. And every culture has its own unique ways of conforming people, right? That's what culture does. Culture conforms us to itself, Roman culture had a unique way of conforming people. Jewish culture had a unique way of conforming people. Greek culture had a unique way of conforming people. And guess what? American culture has a unique way of conforming people. And when I think about the word conform, I I don't know why, but I think about muffins. Because that's when I think about a form, I think about muffins. Muffin batter, all you have to do is just put it in the tin and it automatically, if it sits there long enough and it gets heated up to the right temperature, it simply takes on the shape of the muffin tin, doesn't it? It doesn't have to try. It doesn't have to be intentional. It doesn't have to give off any effort. It just sits there and it is conformed. And that's what culture does. It conforms us. All you have to do is sit there and be conformed by it. It shapes you. It molds you. And Paul is telling both the Jewish audience and the Greek audience, the Roman audience, the Gentile audience, and saying, listen, don't be conformed by this world. And if we're going to take this message seriously in our context, we have to apply that as well, don't we? Don't be conformed by this culture. Don't don't just sit there like a lump of batter and be shaped to think like and act like and live like everybody else. Or as you've always done, because we've all been to some degree conformed and we have to be transformed. That means we go through a metamorphosis, we go through a change. And we have this tendency, don't we, to look at other people and say, well, they need to be changed. I know some other people that need some transformation. And Paul says, no, all of you, both the Jews and the Greeks, 
the Jews and the Gentiles, all of you need transformation. All of you are, have the potential to be conformed by the world, conformed by the culture. And all of you need to be transformed by what? By the renewal of your minds. You have to learn to think differently. The culture will conform you to think like the culture thinks. And we have this tendency to say, yeah, I know a bunch of people that are conformed. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not talking about them. We're talking about you. We're talking about us. We're talking about the person that we look at in the mirror because all of us, like a lump of muffin batter, we can be conformed and have been conformed, and it takes intentionality. You don't have to try to be conformed, but you do have to be intentional about being transformed. You do have to submit yourself to God. Make yourself a living sacrifice to him. That's the only way that you can experience this transformation, this renewal of our minds and learn to think differently. Think differently about what's right. Think differently about what's wrong. Think differently about ourselves. Think differently about our role in the world. And Paul says, because of the mercies of God, based on the mercies of God, all y'all need to Surrender yourselves, submit yourselves, sacrifice yourselves like a living sacrifice to him. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice and don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will know what God's word is. And then look at verse three. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And what's the opposite of sober, right? What's the opposite of sober? Drunk, right? Drunk, intoxicated, not thinking straight. Paul says you, you, can't, you can't be fuzzy thinking. You've got to have sober judgment, an awareness we even use metaphors like that too, don't we? We say somebody is drunk with power, right? When they think that they are more important than they really are, we say they're drunk with power. That power, that egotism, that self-importance, that aggrandizement, it has gone to their head. And they're not thinking straight about who they are. And Paul says you have to learn to think of yourself not just think about the world, not just think about what's right and wrong, but even think about yourself with sober judgment. And every single one of us have the tendency to be drunk with power, to think we're more important than we really are. Now, again, we might tend to do that from an individualistic standpoint. They may have tended to do that from a collective standpoint. They may have thought, well, because I'm Roman, because I'm Greek, because I'm Gentile, and I'm not stuck in those traditional Jewish ways, I'm more important than they are. I'm thinking more clearly than they are. Or, on the other hand, the Jewish Christians might have tended to think of themselves and say, we are God's people, and we have the law, and we have all of these traditions. They may have thought of themselves as too important because they were Greek, or because they were Jewish, or because they were rich, or because they were free, or because they were whatever. And for whatever reason we might think of ourselves as more important, Paul tells us, stop. 
You don't need to be conformed. You need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you think of yourself with sober judgment as you ought to think. And again, that ought to be a wake-up call to us because people that are intoxicated, people are, that are thinking fuzzy, th- people that aren't thinking clearly don't really know that they're not thinking clearly, right? And so we have to stop and say, is it possible Is it possible that I'm not thinking of myself with sober judgment? He says, this is how you do it. This is how you think of yourself with sober judgment. You measure yourself according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, we think, what does that mean, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned? We tend to think about faith, and we tend to think that faith just means believing in God. But faith is so much more than that, isn't it? Faith is more than just believing in God. Faith is our response to the mercies of God. Faith is our response to the grace of God. Faith is responding to God's grace with gratitude, with trust, and with loyalty. That's what faith is. Faith is responding to the gifts and the mercies and the grace of God with trust and gratitude, and loyalty, saying, because of who you are and because of what you've done, I present myself as a living sacrifice to you, Father, to do your will. I will be loyal to you, and I will trust you, and I will be grateful to you, and I will sing your praises because of what you've done. And Paul says, that's the measure of who you are, is faith. That's the measure And faith looks different in different people, right? For for Noah, what was the measure of faith? Building an ark, right? Because that's what he was told to do. And by faith, he built the ark. For Abraham, the measure of faith was leaving his home country and going to a place that God would show him. It was offering up or being willing to offer up his son as a sacrifice, Paul says, this is the measure by which you measure yourself. This is the measure by which you think of yourself with sober judgment is according to the measure of faith. Because you're only God's child. Because he gave you a gift. Because he gave you membership in his family by grace. And your response to that, your gratitude, your loyalty your allegiance, your trust, that's the measure by which you measure yourself. That's how you think of yourself. What does faith require of me? Who are you? I'm just a recipient of God's grace. I'm just just somebody who is obliged to offer up myself to God as a living sacrifice. That's who you are. Now, that'll humble us, won't it? Because it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how whatever you are. This is who you are. If you are God's child, then you are a recipient of his grace. And you are obliged to respond to him in faith, in gratitude, in trust, and in loyalty. Now, here's where I really want to get to. Verse 4, he says, For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. Now, he's giving us a metaphor, right? A metaphor by which we can understand 
ourselves in relation not only to God, but in relation to each other. Because our tendency is to elevate ourselves above everybody else. Their tendency was to elevate themselves and their family or themselves and their tribe or themselves and their clan or themselves and their nation above other people. Maybe our tendency is to elevate ourselves individually above others, but we all have this tendency to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And Paul says, here's how you think of yourself with sober judgment. You recognize your recipient of grace who's to respond in faith and you are a member of a body. And a body has lots of different parts, doesn't it? Lots of different parts. Think about our, our human body. I don't know how many parts our body has, but it's got to be infinite, maybe, when you think about cells and you break it down to a microscopic level. Our body is made up of all kinds of parts. We're not part of the same body because we're the same we're part of the same body because we've received membership by God's grace. And in the body, we are different. And that's good. It's not bad that we're different. It's good that we're different. It's good that there's Jews. It's good that there's Greeks. It's good that there's men. It's good that there's women. It's good that there's people from this tribe and this clan and this family. It's good that we are different in the body of Christ, because that's what a body looks like. A body is unified. It's one. When the Bible says that we are one, it means we are unified. We are together. We are connected. We are one. But that doesn't mean that everybody within the body is the same. We are very different, because that's what a body is like. It has many different parts, but they do not all have the same function. We have eyes, and our eyes have a certain function. We have a nose, and our nose has a certain function. We have a mouth, and our mouth has a certain function. And our mouth doesn't have the same function as our eyes. And our eyes don't have the same function as our nose. And our hands don't have the same function as our ears. We have different body parts and different functions that accompany all of them, but they all have the same purpose. They're all working together towards the same ends. But there is a diversity in the body just as there is a diversity in the church. But just because there's diversity doesn't mean there should be division. It is a unified diversity. And Paul says it's good that there's different parts. And it doesn't mean one part is better than another part. All y'all are members of his body and have different functions. He'll go on in verse 6 to talk about prophecy and service and teaching and leading and giving and acts of mercy. All have different functions, but you're all part of the same body. Again, if we're going to think of ourselves with sober judgment, that's how we have to learn to think about ourselves. If we're going to be transformed instead of conformed, then we have to learn to think of ourselves as a member of the body. I'm a nose, and that doesn't make me better than my toes. It just means I'm different, not necessarily better. We're all part of the same body. 
And we're members of this body not because we're good, not because we're wholesome, not because we're smart, not because we're strong, not because we come from the right family. We're part of this body because of the mercies of God, because of the grace of God. He put us in this body, and that's why I have membership here, and I may have a different function than someone else, but that doesn't mean that I'm any less or any more part of the body. Again, same metaphor, look at verse 5. He says, so we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, we ought to stop right there and just think of how interesting it is that he phrased it that way. He says that we are members one of another. He doesn't say we're members of the body, although that's true and that's what he's been talking about. We are members of the body. And he doesn't say even that we're members of Christ. He says we're members one of another. What does that mean? The NIV translates it that we belong to one another. That's what it means. It means that the body parts all belong to each other. That our body parts are connected not just to the head. That'd be a funny looking body, wouldn't it? If there was connection to the head, but there wasn't connection to the rest of the body. Our body parts all belong to each other. My hand belongs to my stomach because here in just a little bit, my hand's going to help my mouth to have food in it and my mouth is going to help my stomach to have food in it and my stomach's going to turn it back into energy, which my hand is going to appreciate because my whole body belongs to the other members. Every individual member of my body belongs to every other individual member of my body. And that's a pretty unique way of thinking, isn't it? Because it isn't just that the individual Christian belongs to Jesus. It's that the individual Christian belongs to every other individual Christian. That's what it is to be part of the body of Christ. And we talk a lot about personal faith. And I think that's good. I think personal faith is a good idea. I want my boys to have personal faith. If by personal faith we're contrasting that with vicarious faith, nobody can believe for them right? I want them to have a personal faith. But if by personal faith we mean a separate faith or an individual faith, or if, we, if we're contrasting it with a shared faith, then that's not a good idea. Nobody, nobody can believe for you, but you better have people who believe with you. Our personal faith in Jesus our relationship to Jesus and with Jesus not only connects us to him, but connects us to each other. And Paul says we are members not just of Christ, but we are members one of another. Following Jesus cannot be done alone. That's a very modern Western thought, that following Jesus can be done alone. Even baptism, we don't baptize ourselves. Someone else baptizes us, right? We all have to decide individually to be baptized, but we don't baptize ourselves. Someone else has to baptize us into Jesus. We all decide to take the bread and drink the cup, but we're sharing it with one another. When Paul talks about us singing in Ephesians and Colossians, he doesn't just talk about us singing to God, we're also singing to one another, right? That we don't just belong to Jesus, we belong to each other. I belong to you. You belong to me. We belong not just to Jesus, but to each other. It is not enough 
that we have a relationship with Jesus. Being a part of the body of Christ also means that we have a relationship with each other. So here's, based on this passage, this is how we think of ourselves with sober judgment. One, we're recipients of God's grace. That's what Paul's been laying out all through Romans. We're recipients of God's grace. It's not because we've achieved it. It's because we've received it. Number two, we are obliged. I wish I had about 20 minutes to talk about the word obliged. That's a good word. Because obliged means both grateful and obligated. And those are two ideas that have been disconnected in our modern thinking. But in the first century, they were connected. If you're grateful, then you're obligated. If somebody's given you a gift, then you're obligated. We are obliged to offer up our bodies to God in faith. And then finally, we belong to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now notice that idea, we belong to our brothers and sisters of Christ. And here's where I want us to end. Members of a body belong not only with one another, but to one another. As this pandemic slowly hopefully burns out and we get back to being with each other more and more, we have to understand that Christianity is more than being with each other. It is more than belonging with each other. It is also belonging to each other. I can go to the grocery store and I belong with my fellow shoppers at the grocery store, right? I belong with them, but I don't belong to them. In this body, we belong to each other, not just with each other, because you can be in the same building with someone and not think of yourself as belonging to them. And we have to learn to think this way, that I belong to my brothers and sisters in Christ. What does that mean? It means everything he'll go on to say in the rest of the chapter, serve each other, love each other, lead each other, help each other, teach each other, exhort each other. Why? Because you belong not just to Jesus. It's not just your own personal, individual relationship with him. You belong to Jesus, and belonging to Jesus means belonging to each other. These are my people. These are your people. Who are you? What is your identity? It should be, first and foremost, that we belong to each other in the body of Christ. It is relational, but it's not just relationally vertically, but also horizontally. And if we're going to be transformed in our thinking, then we have to embrace this truth that we not only belong with each other, we belong to each other. And if we can help you with that idea or anything else, one of our shepherds would love to meet with you at the information desk as together we stand and sing this final song.